This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Welcome to the program. The question in the air is what job, what task, what did you ever really want to do? Did you always kind of have, and I hope so, that goal, that thing you thought, I, I really want to do that, especially, you know, the old term, when you grow up? Ramya Muthan is joining me here as usual on the program. Hey, nice to have you back. Thanks, Kels. I hope you guys had a good uh, long, well, weekend. Well, I had a long weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a good question, though. Did you have, we, we've talked often that you have broadcasting, doing what you're doing now, isn't what you originally thought you'd be doing, even when you decided to work in the industry or that you might try to get your hands into the industry. What was that job that when you were a kid? I always tell people, if the truth be known, I wanted to be a garbage collector. I wanted to go and pick up garbage. It's something I've always, when I was a kid, wanted to do. Uh, And as things got more serious, yes, I I wanted to be involved in broadcasting on some some level. Uh, I would say that what I wanted to do was commentary for baseball. How about yourself? Um, when I was little, first of all, we used to put on so many talent shows at my house, me and my brother, just everything, every day was a talent show. Um, and so I think that performance or, you know, like being in front of people was always something that I I grew up with. But when I was little, maybe because my mom's a teacher, um, that's her like full time. Uh, I wanted to be a teacher as well. Like teaching felt like the way that I would go because I loved, you know, writing on the chalkboard, using those long rulers to like tap the chalkboard. Even though I couldn't see the chalkboard growing up, that's the funniest part. Um, (laughs) It was just, it was fun being in front of a classroom, the fake classroom at my house and uh, instructing to people in this very, you know, authoritative (laughs) way. I liked writing on the board. I just liked that. Yes. Now look here. And that's the part I really like. We'd never actually write anything. (laughs) <laughs> no, exactly. I just made the noise of it. Just you know, that's what it sounded like to me in school. Oh, and of course, making a mess with the darn eraser sponge, slapping it. Oh, look at the look! Look! Look at the smoke! <laughs> yep. Yeah, and your parents love that. Yeah, look at my laundry. Um, the reason I bring this up simply is later on in the program on Voices, we'll be visiting with DJ Demers, who uh, is a comic uh, who uh, we know over at AMI from his time uh, working on the TV side. Him and I had many shoots together doing different things and working and covering things in the Toronto area. Uh, He has a show in Toronto. We'll give you the details on that later on uh, when he's here. But that big question is always in the air. So is this what you always wanted to do? So I thought I'd kick the show off a little bit and, and give a little primer before we bring him on. But what else is on board today on Kelly and Company? Well, I think I know the answer if Jeff Ryman was here. It would be a, a definite yes. Do you want to make big bucks eating candy? Candy Funhouse, mm-hmm. North America's largest online candy retailer, is on the hunt to find the world's first and only chief candy officer. We'll learn more in a little while about this. 
I'm so looking forward to it. We're also checking in with community reporter from St. John's, Newfoundland, Kim Thistle, and she's telling us about a ton of different things. Uh, looking forward to it, including the Mount Pearl Renaissance Festival. Mm. Young Wang shares her recent learnings about lawns, aesthetics, and diversity. In her most recent visit to Kelly and Company, we'll have that visit in hour two. Uh, folks, I want to jump into a food recall right away that's uh, out there. Kraft Heinz is recalling thousands of pouches of Cabri Sun. A recall of more than 5,000 cases of wild cherry Capri Suns. This after Kraft Heinz says a diluted cleaning solution was accidentally introduced into the production line at one of its factories. They discovered the issue after customers complained about the taste. The company says the affected boxes have a best when used by date of June 25th, 2023. You should stop drinking it immediately and return it for a full refund. No other flavors were included in the recall. Lionel Moy. ABC News. Just so you folks know, also so you know, Rum is here with a little update on our book club. What book we're reading, Rum? Yep, this month's book is The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's recommended to us by Catherine Thatcher. It's a pre-20th century classic fiction, uh, and it's human narrated on Sela. It's set in the Puritan Massachusetts Bay Colony during the years 1642 to 1649. It tells the story of Hester Prynne, who conceives a daughter with a man whom she is not married to and then struggles to create a new life of repentance and dignity. Uh, We're talking about it on the last Tuesday of the month, which happens to be August 30th, and we'll talk about it with Catherine on our panel. Mm, should be very, very interesting. That's for sure. Yep. It's it's one of those books you've heard a lot about, and always one of those ones that makes you stop and say, hmm, I, I know the name, but I'm not sure I remember it. So, And I think it's probably the oldest book, Rum, I, I think that we've covered in the book club, I believe, because I believe... Yeah, oh yeah, uh, for sure. What is it, 1850? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's I, when it this came is out, definitely right? the oldest book we've read on the book club. Yeah, so it'll be very, very interesting. Um, we'll be <laughs> interested to see how we do with it. I, I'm, I'm finding it a bit of a tougher read, and it's not so much the old language; it's just uh, at the moment getting getting into it. But that's what the book club to me is all about: testing and mm-hmm. getting into some of the genres, the books that you may otherwise not do. And unfortunately, they didn't do it in school, which I, that would really have helped. <laughs> Folks, our vet is unavailable today, so we've got some conversation coming up. We're going to start with a very interesting item and ponder and talk about, and it's animal-related. So we're off to a good start today here on Kelly & Company. Hopefully, you'll stick with us for the whole show. Lots ahead. We'll be right back. When you have some time and you want to reach out to AMI, you can do it through the Accessible Media Inc. Facebook page. Lots of content there in which you can check out and some conversation. That's the Accessible Media Inc. Facebook page. Please like it. And if you want to actually leave us a message, best way to do it is just give a call. 1-866-509-4545. You can mention it's for Kelly and Company. Maybe you want to recommend a book for our book club or just get a comment in. And if you don't mind, we'll, we'll play it on the air if we can. Uh, but you do have to give us permission to do that. 
1-866-509-4545 is the number. And on Twitter, she's at AllRams with a Z. I'm at AMI Kelly Mac. And, of course, the handle for AMI-audio, at AMI-audio on Twitter. Please join us. Follow along with what's happening on the program at AMI-audio on Twitter. You can see what's happening from segment to segment. Well, our veterinarian today, Rum, she's not available, so we thought we'd uh, talk a little bit. And Matt passed on to us an interesting item to start with. Mm-hmm. So this is an article by The Guardian, um, and it's entitled, Should We Stop Keeping Pets? Research into animals' emotional lives has cast doubt on the ethics of pet keeping. So um, I'm not going to lie, when I started uh, to explore this article, I was already feeling kind of squeamish because it's really... Um, there's a lot of questions on the the ethics, the moral side of things, but we, you know, pet owners, pet keepers, people who've grown up with animals in their lives and domesticated, you know, cats or dogs or anything else for that matter, um, might have some challenges kind of grasping this concept altogether. But we'll go through some of this article. It's a really long one. We'll go through some of it and see um, how we feel because there are some important things to keep in mind here. So this is from The Guardian, as I said, uh, written by Linda rodriguez McGarvey. People have pets in the millions, it starts off uh, by saying. How can you, how can we uh, help care for them correctly and appropriately is the question. So it was a Tupperware tub of live baby rats that made Dr. Jessica Pierce start to question this idea of pet ownership. She was at her local branch of PetSmart, a pet store chain in the U.S. and here, uh, buying a uh, buying crickets for her daughter's gecko. And the baby rats squeaking in their plastic container were brought in by a man who was maybe, hopefully, uh, offering to sell them to the store as pets or as food for the resident snakes. She was not sure exactly what was happening, but she was troubled. Rats have a sense of empathy, and there's been a lot of research on what happens when you take babies away from a mother rat. They experience uh, things like profound distress and She's wondering, how can we do this to animals? So she went on to write Run, Spot, Run, which outlines the case against pet ownership in 2015. And uh, there are a couple things that were laid out here, okay, Kel? So from the animals that become dog and cat food and the puppy tr- farms churning out increasingly increasingly unhealthy purebred canines to the goldfish sold by the bag and the crickets by the box, pet ownership is problematic because it denies a few things. Uh, The animals, the right of self-determination, and we bring them home into our lives because we want them, right? Like we want them as pets, but we dictate what they eat, where they live, how they behave, how they look, whether they get to keep their sex organs. And it's morally problematic because more people are thinking of pets as people and they consider them part of their family. They think of them as their best friend. Uh, They wouldn't sell them for a million dollars. But at the same time, research is revealing that the emotional lives of animals, even relatively, and they quoted this, simple animals, such as goldfish, are far more complex and rich than we first thought. So let's pause there for a second and discuss a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. It's interesting that all these animals are being put kind of in the same uh, spectrum here, right? Like we're not just talking cats and dogs. We're talking goldfish and rats and and birds weren't mentioned up to this point. But, uh, you know, I know a couple of people who have birds. So that kind of thing. And we're thinking, you know, is this okay? 
And like you've not been a pet owner. I didn't grow up having pets. We had a hamster, I think, like when I was. Oh, way, I had way, a cat young. as a kid. Okay, okay, you had a yeah. cat, mm-hmm. um, and now I have a dog. So it does. I think the word that I'm going for is worry, but it makes me feel uncomfortable um, to think, you know, are we doing the right thing? But, you know, so far what's been pointed out in this article is true, right? We decide if the, to keep the pets healthy and safe um, and properly domesticated. And convenient for us. Yes. You know, we, uh, we go on routine feeding schedules, like around the clock, um, they they go to washroom like outside like we relieve them outdoors if we're talking uh, dogs. Um, we decide whether they get spayed or neutered, mm-hmm. and we listen to you know vet recommendations, blah blah blah. Right. But is this still okay? Like we're still well, thinking we, we control their life one hundred percent. Yes, we, we we stop and that question came up about. What do we view them as, uh, like a pet, uh, a friend? Uh, we love them. There's the unconditional love in return, you hope, um, depending, I guess, on the nature of the pet oh, that some people have. Some some animals will not give you that 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 unconditional mm-hmm. love, and people still keep them in, in uh, you know, as a pet, captivity, whatever way you most want to call them. And who's going to judge? And they do. Uh, there are laws about certain animals you can't have here, there, whatever. But the reality is... Anyone can get a dog or cat, doesn't matter about their yeah. economic status or ability to take care of. We don't necessarily, until trouble starts, we don't necessarily call us proper the, the same kinds of checks or laws that maybe some people I think here would scream we should for the protection, but also, well, are, you know, some people might take it to the extreme while you're enslaving an animal. Yeah, exactly. And it's really um, kind of. It is dividing, like morally dividing, but also just in our own heads, we wonder if we're doing the right thing by saying, yes, but I'm I'm such a great, you know, you've heard this, right? I'm a good pet owner, or this person or that person is a good pet owner. Or uh, we even think of it with guide dog and service animals, like, are you a good handler? Do you know what you're doing, right? But the And to somebody watching you handling the dog. Yes, who doesn't exactly. know, they may have ethical questions that whether it's any of their business or not, or yeah. the trust has to be that they were trained properly um, and so on. But we all have our take on how that should be managed. How it should be managed, but also even like when we think internationally, we think here in, in North America, like it's normal for people to have dogs and cats and, and it's dog culture, cat culture, pet culture, right? But uh, my mom, actually, the the biggest reason why we didn't have a dog growing up is because her idea of having a dog as a, quote, pet was so different in Sri Lanka compared to having indoor pets here. So, you well, know, in, you, you've in got a note places, here, Ram, that says in this item that in another study, 90% of Britons uh, who own a pet think of that pet as a member of their family, as exactly. you mentioned a while ago, versus what you're saying in other areas where in other people areas. do not see or the pet goes in and out. It's, it's in and out. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of like coexist. But you don't necessarily like sleep in the same bed as your dog, right? Or, or the vice versa. But here's the thing, okay? If we're talking about um, keeping pets or not keeping pets, the consequences, the logical or, or the ethical 
consequence and, and thing question to think about if you're like, my dog is my best friend, this is a member of our family, et cetera, et cetera, is the more that we attribute them with these characteristics of dogs, or sorry, animals being people, the less right we have to control every single aspect of their lives, which is the issue, right? So does this mean that in 50 years or 100 years, we won't have pets anymore because institutions that exploit animals like the circus are shutting down. Uh, there are calls to end or at least rethink zoos. The number of people in, in this um, article, they mentioned Britain uh, specifically, but um, people who profess to be vegan are, you know, that's rising as well. The number of vegans out here. So do you think that down the line, like from this point where we are right now, we are getting closer and closer to uh, less domesticated animals, aka pets? And I'm I'm curious about that because, again, it feels like we're moving in that direction. Even that article we t- discussed a couple weeks ago, Kels, on uh, cats and domesticated mm-hmm. cats, and you yep. know the controversy on that, if that's okay or not. Do you? <laughs> The thing that always puzzles me is the old term of dogs are man's best friend. We also state which animals we are going to put that value on, take care of more, be closer to the ones that's allowed to do this and that. No, no, we wouldn't allow that that dog in the house or, or sorry, that dog or that pet. Or uh, it, It's very interesting what even the ones we love, because some people mm-hmm. will have rats or whatever as, as a pet. And off the top, you had some interesting things that I never really thought about about rats in this item. But... Um, when you hear the, well, dogs are man's best friends and cats have their own little personality. And yet then if you look at what people are encouraged to do in taking care of animals, we put a higher emphasis on cats, dogs Mm -hmm. than birds, which is interesting. Yeah, and I'm it not is saying, and I'm not saying everyone. Don't get me wrong, folks. This isn't black, black and white. I'm aware of that I know that it's easy to say, "Well, you're not even a pet owner. What do you know?" And, and going from the item, I understand that. But these are observations that do we have the same concerns when a bird's health is is in the, until the bird's laying there and not moving, or mm-hmm. oh my goodness, as we would with taking the bird for certain checkups, as we do dogs and cats and and stray animals, right? right. Like, how do we respond when we see uh, animals? Animals on the street, yes. Um, you know who might be injured or going through something or rabid, and it, you know there's more to this. There's so many different parts of this article that is very, uh, you know, worth reading. And I think that Kels, as you kind of put there too, I think it's important to add people into this argument who aren't pet owners because that there, there's a a perspective to be heard um, from people who don't have pets and why, right? So our animals can't be it can't tell us if they're happy being pets or not and so there's this illusion this is what dr pierce says there's this illusion that now their pets have more voice than in the past but it might be more that we're putting words in their mouth maybe we're humanizing them in a way that actually makes them invisible and she's talking about um you know social media sensations we talked about this with daniel jonkind so uh, dogs and cats that are making waves on social media and it's really just us putting captions and and word uh, like voices um and saying you know this is the talking dog this is the talking cat ha 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 right. but the the deeper look at that is you know are they talking are we actually understanding what they're saying or are is it just cutesy right and that's really interesting too um anyways well they become more they're invisible. saying yeah exactly that's exactly the argument that dr pierce is making and 
so just to kind of round this off, they're saying if you accept the argument that pet ownership is morally questionable, how do you put the brakes on such a vast industry? Um, so there's a lot more to this, just like with everything else, just like global warming and and climate awareness and eating healthier and processed foods, like with everything else, uh, the pet industry is a gigantic one, right? So it's not just, you know, our own uh, question of ethics and whether we think it's okay to have pets or not. It To kind of halt this entire thing um, takes much more thought, uh, much more openness to the opposite argument of what you may feel. And, you know, things can go anywhere from here, I think. It's a lot of thought on a lot of what you feel is right. And, of course, these folks here in the article will also admit, too, as they wrote and did their studies, they have pets themselves. We'll step aside for a couple of moments. When we return, we look into the archives and we'll listen to a conversation with our nutritionist, Julia Karanchis. Remember to utilize TuneIn Radio and OOTunes, folks. A couple apps in which to download to your smart device. Then you can take us with you. You can listen to AMI-audio by doing a simple search. And maybe you can Bluetooth us to a speaker or just go out. Sit outside. Or if you have to run some errands, we'll stay with you. Best way to check us out when you're on the move. TuneIn Radio, OOTunes apps you can uh, download to your smart device. Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald, we are the hosts of the program. And hope that the last item that we talked about in the last segment just made you think a little bit on both sides of the fence, Rum. Yeah, I, I think that that's the that's the honest way to to respond to something like this, right? Like pet owners and non-pet owners alike, kind of understanding where this stuff stems from and then seeing, uh, you know, where you sit, but also why there's accurate, uh, you know, information or thought on the other side. For sure. And I, and I think that's the whole thing. It's the other side. Doesn't mean it has to work for you or you have to agree or make get jump on board with that no. movement if there is even such a movement out there. Um, I think it makes us think about treatment and, and the things that we want best for, for our pets if we're a pet owner and uh, vice versa. The things that maybe, how, how come you're not a pet owner? Folks, we are going to uh, reach into the archives, folks, and learn a little bit about lesser-known berries from our chat with Julia Karanchis in our nutrition segment that we have on here every two weeks on the program. This is from November 23rd, 2021. Today on the program with Julia, we're going to talk about berries, Hmm. but not the blue, black, or straw kind. Whoa, something a little different today, Julia. Yeah, we're going to talk about the lesser known berries. So the the other month we talked about the health benefits of berries uh, and the immune system. And we focus mostly on the common kinds that we have all heard of, right? So we talked about blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, strawberries. But I felt like we were doing a big disservice to all of the other berries that there are. So, you know, the less common berries that are also really good for us. And I wanted to show them some attention today. So I'm branching off from not our last segment, but the segment before that where we talked about berries, and I'm just making it a continuation. Okay. All right. No problem there. Uh, how many How many berries are there? 
Okay, so this is a very loaded question. Um, I mean, if you do a quick Google search about lesser known berries, one of the first articles for me that came up right away just said 15 lesser known berries. So, you know, right off the bat, that's your quick search. Yeah. And I'm sure, and I know the list goes on from there. Um, but to, you know, to throw uh, a wrench into the, into the dishwasher here, there's also really common foods that are technically berries that you probably wouldn't associate with the berry family. Mm. So, you know, first you might, you know, we should probably visit what the definition of a berry is. Right. Okay. Okay. So what's the actual definition of a berry? I'm very yeah. curious about what we don't know are already berries. Yeah. Okay. So I, I hope I blow your minds because I was, I, I knew about some of them, but I think I, I really maybe hadn't thought it through. And then my mind was blown. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. So um, it's, you know, by definition, a berry is seeds surrounded by a fleshy pulp. So guys, are you ready? Watermelon, mm -hmm. avocados, and pumpkins are all by definition berries. Wow. Is that why? A Is watermelon, I think I knew. I think I'd heard that before and was blown away. A pumpkin, no, because I'm so used to people calling it, you know, putting it, oh, it's a gourd. Okay, yeah. It's a go but well, I know. I agree with that. And avocados, I knew, were a fleshy fruit like an olive. But I, I don't know if I've ever really knowingly actively thought, oh, this is a berry. But, I mean, it kind yeah, of is. No. Aren't there, right? and there's some things I think that we even have nut on the name that are considered actually berries. I, I yeah, feel like, like there's something. Um, yeah, like a peanut, I think is technically a legume, but please don't, don't nobody quote me on that. Maybe we'll talk about that in the next segment. <laughs> could wow. be a cashew, could be that's, a cashew. I'm not, yeah, that's something. Like, it's it's yeah. crazy though, but it, it, when you think of a watermelon, a berry, yeah, I think I'll have some berries. That's, uh, I don't think you can eat two watermelon. Um, the other thing is too, because their skins are so giant. Like you don't eat avocado skin and watermelon, and yeah, no. you know, you're no, just cracking but, right into the middle. So right, but yeah, and you would eat like a, the skin of a blueberry and all of sure, those. Exactly. I know. I know. But okay, so yes, so like yes, that's a fun fact. However, that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're, we are going to stick to what I think most people would consider a berry. And that would be something that, yes, you would eat the skin of. So a small, juicy, usually sweet, but sometimes tart little bulbs of, of goodness. Mm. So yeah, okay. something I think that it might be is texturally a little more easy to digest okay. as a berry. Ha ha ha. Yeah. And I, I bet a <laughs> lot of them... <laughs> aren't heard of because, well, to us anyway, or to, to people in different places around the world because of where they come from. Exactly, exactly. So, for example, gooseberries, which we do not have here, and if we do, they're certainly not, I think, over. they're, they're not common. Uh, gooseberries grow in Germany, and uh, in Texas, apparently, you hear a lot about dewberries, dewberry jam, dewberry oh. pie. But again, I mean, I've never had dewberry pie over here in Canada and Ontario. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely the region in which you live would expose you to something that's probably less common in, in another region. Yeah, and I know we, yeah, interesting. we really promote, uh, yeah, and we promote a lot of eat local, but wouldn't it be nice to try some of this yeah. other stuff? So, <laughs> like, you talk uh, like the, the bumbleberries, right, Rum? Yeah, yeah. I, they always exactly. talk bumbleberry pie, and my father used to. Say, it, it's not a. It's a mix-up of of stuff. It's not an actual berry. Yes, I know that was hard for me to get my head around. I didn't yeah. understand that for a while. 
There's also some fake berries in TV shows that I'm not going to get into, but I made my mom go to the grocery <laughs> store and find out if they're real. <laughs> Can you uh, imagine your mother screaming at the manager? Yeah. I know you have them. Why are you hiding them? <laughs> yeah. Mom, uh, never mind. Okay, so what's the dewberry? Okay, well, it's related to the blackberry. The leaves are used for tea, and the berry part is not going to taste like a blackberry, but texturally it'll have you know, the same feel as a blackberry, but it's more so described as tart. Uh, But they can be used in pies and cobblers like you would with blackberries or blueberries or peach or apple. You could do it in a cobbler, but um, yeah, so it's, it's going to have like those, you know, the little lumps that you would feel if you ate a blackberry, but it's going to be much tart, tartar. I don't know if that word sounds very awkward, but I just used it. So it's it's not going to be as sweet. Um, and then another berry that I really want to talk about that can be used in a pie is the elderberry. And this is really interesting because it is not common here. These are really, really very tiny berries. And their use dates back hundreds of years in England, Central and Eastern Europe as a tonic for the cold and flu, which... You can still find today in our health food stores. Yeah. So, right, it's 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 very common to get elderberry syrup or elderberry lozenges, mm-hmm. and they elderberry you know, they jam. are toted. Ooh. Yes, and they are toted to help to decrease the duration of a cold and flu, and to help speed up the recovery from a cold and flu. And so, this is super awesome because they're you know they're still being used, and they. They are not overly common here, but funny story. I was actually talking to my mother-in-law and she grew up on a farm in, uh, in Ontario, just about two hours north, uh, east of, or northwest, I should say, of Toronto. And they used to have uh, elderberry bushes and her mother would make oh. pie, elderberry pie. And she, it was all the rage for the older generation because, uh, you know, eventually the younger generation, it was very nitpicky apparently to... Uh, I'm going to say harvest them, like pick them because they're so oh, tiny. Right. They're also very tart. And so they did require a lot of sugar to like make it palatable, right? Mm. To <laughs> to want to eat it. But I just thought that was very cool that, you know, I, I, my understanding of the elderberry is more as this cold and flu tonic. And her understanding was as this really annoying pie to make. Wow. Do, do we know where they're actually more prominent in the sense of like, do they grow in England? I don't know if they currently grow in England. That's a, like, a really good question. Um, that's where the, it originated from. So yeah. I'm sure you could still find them in Central and Eastern Europe as well. Which would uh, make sense as to why, you know, in some parts of Canada, if, you know, like the bushes up there, the Western Toronto there, um, probably were brought or, you know, over and, and grown as just something that, well, why wouldn't we have this here? Especially for the jams yeah. and stuff. Exactly. And I think it's one of those berries because um, there's another berry called the the lingonberry, which you can also find as um, actually as a jam. Sometimes you can find it at Ikea because it has Scandinavian. It's very popular in Scandinavian cuisine, um, but it is better cooked kind of like the elderberry is because of its tartness, because when you when you cook it, um, it can like balance out like the sour to the sweetness. So I think it's, okay. it's, you know, again, really interesting, like, you know, not just a berry mm-hmm. that you pick off the bush and then eat. Yeah. Right. Super yeah. interesting. Yeah. And that lingonberry is, is related to the cranberry, which we all know to be very tart. So yeah, that's very. not a hard jump. Yeah. It's really tart. Okay. What's a, another less common berry we could find here? Oh, okay. 
This is a good question. Um, I'm going to talk about two. The goji berry is very common here. Um, you can find it dry. You can find it in a lot of bulk food stores. It's very high in antioxidants. You can also find it uh, bottled as a juice, the, the, the goji berry. And then the other berry is the golden berry. And uh, this is also known as the Cape Gooseberry, which is not to be confused with the other berry, which is just called Gooseberry, which I find very confusing. Um, and the golden berries are the size of like a cherry tomato. And I have found them here dried. So I have found them like packaged in, in you know, in a grocery store or a health food store. And then I eat them like raisins. And mm. you could, mm. you know, eat. The, yeah. So you, you could put them in a trail mix. There's right. I was just going to ask if you've ever seen them in trail mixes. Yes. Uh, okay. So I haven't seen them in like pre-made trail mixes. I've just seen them bagged on their own. Um, but then you could just, you know, you could buy almonds, you could buy walnuts, you oh, could yeah. buy cranberries or, or uh, raisins if you want. And then you would add the golden, the dried golden berry into your own mix. I have seen though, Kelly, uh, goji berries in pre-mixed trail mixes. That's um, common or mm. You know, I want, maybe not common is not the word, but that is not as, you know, hard to find as using the golden berry. Um, but the golden berries are great because they they contain good amounts of fiber, which a lot of berries do, and vitamin C, which is very on on brand with other right, berries. Right. Yeah. Um, we know they've got vitamin K, and of course, you know, they're very high in antioxidants. So if you are a dried fruit eater. Because we know that, you know, the texture is harder with a dried fruit. But if you are somebody that likes to eat dried fruit, then they're definitely worth sourcing. Um, and then maybe, you know, swap them out occasionally for raisins or cranberries. So instead of using the raisin or cranberry, you can use the golden berry. And you're just going to get a little bit of a different nutritional profile. And so that's something that, like, you'll find here. It's really interesting, right? I find it interesting when you talk about the when you look at swapping them out for raisins or craisins or whatever you might have in one right. of those trail mixes, um, especially if you're trying to make yourself your a, a reasonably healthy alternative with your trail mix, because sometimes yes. you just get so into it and, and maybe somebody with diabetes says, I'd like something that has that a taste, even, even if it's tarty, but to have with the nuts and stuff like that to offset it. So you start looking at the berries, in my opinion, the dried ones like this or ones that come this way uh, as that kind of alternative. Absolutely. And the, the thing to note with trail mixes and why I do love making them on your own, which doesn't, you know, it doesn't take too much effort, is you're able to choose the fruit and the nuts that go in it as opposed to the premixed ones, which sometimes because, for example, cranberries are quite tart and you'll often find the ones in the trail mixes that have a coating of sugar on them to try to offset that tartness. And then the nuts could be potentially have, um, you know, extra salt or covered in an oil. Whereas when you make your own, not only are you able to choose raw nuts or unsalted nuts, but you're also now able to increase your variety, which I, I mean, I think this theme of my segment comes back all the time to variety, variety, just, I, I think it's so important for the body to be exposed to different foods because I, we know that exposes us to different nutrient profiles, which is so important. And I, I always want people to keep that in their minds, you know, that the point of eating food is eating food is to take in nutrition. And so you don't want to just always be choosing nutritionally void foods that, you know, don't have those vitamins and minerals and are just giving you calories because it's just not optimal health to do that, you know? And so, um, 
it's great to try new foods and you expose yourself to different nutrients so that, you, you know, you might be getting something that you wouldn't be getting in your normal raisin or cranberry. You're now getting some different nutrients that are in the golden berry or whatever other berry you've chosen that wouldn't be in the, your typical fruit that you might be eating. You also hope that whatever you select, it adds to it. You like it. Yeah, so you'll come yeah. back to making that mix instead of, well, because Julia said, you know, I better right. have this. It's a healthier choice than really that saturated in oil and a little glaze of chocolate oh, or, or, or sugar. <laughs> uh, I'd rather have that. Uh, Julia, thanks yeah. a lot. We'll talk to you next time when you're with us. And uh, you'll be here to uh, talk about putting a health twist on holiday drinks. Take care. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Awesome, folks. We, we're learning about lesser-known berries on our nutrition segment with Julia Caranches. We do that every second week here on the program. That, of course, from November 23rd, 2021. Coming up next, we have a job for you, folks. Candy Funhouse, North America's largest online candy retailer, is on the hunt to find the world's first and only chief candy officer. Man, that could be you. We'll learn more about it in two minutes right here on Kelly and Company. not a cavity i guarantee your teeth are just aching for us to get into the next segment here and this next conversation we'll get to in just a moment stand by i want to mention though check out the kelly and company podcast experience simply subscribe using your favorite podcatcher you can check the show out in segment form maybe you'll hear a segment that you just want to share with someone you want to re-listen to if you maybe catch it in the middle okay no problem we put it along our feed in segment form however always like to recommend to check out the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience. We throw an audio vanity card on the end of it, but we've got the whole show ready and available to you so you can just settle back, maybe do a few things while you're listening into Kelly and Company. Just use your favorite podcast platform in which to enjoy the program. I'm Kelly McDonald, host of the program with my co-host, Ramya Muthan. So, Kels, to this conversation, without further ado, if you want to make big bucks eating candy, well, Candy Funhouse, North America's largest online candy retailer, is on the hunt to find the world's first and only chief candy officer. We've been uh, referring to this as CCO throughout the day as we talk about, you know, who's going to get this lucky job. So we're going to talk to candyologist Stephanie West about this position and everything that's going on. Stephanie, thank you for coming on Kelly and Company. Thank you for having me. So we're very excited, as you can tell. Uh, we're here for the backup position if needed. If you can please start off by telling us about Candy Funhouse, and we'll go from there. No problem. So as you said, Candy Funhouse is the largest online candy store and retailer within North America. Um, we started online in 2018, you know, just with the shift moving digital. And the uh, mm. biggest reason being we wanted to carry, you know, all the candy that you could ever think of, the most retro, the newest, the most exotic, and be able to bring it right to your front door and moving online has brought us that capability. Um, and then we just continue to expand and expand and move towards also a digital platform as we love to engage with our community within uh, North America and, and the rest of the world. 
pretty amazing how many people got more comfortable ordering stuff, doing things online uh, with the pandemic, Stephanie. I think probably that that added to that. So congratulations. That's awesome. But I know people are saying, come on, guys, get to it, get to it. What on earth is a chief candy officer? So the chief candy officer is our head candy taste tester who's going to lead our candyologist, which is myself, um, as well as leading, you know, the fun house strategy. So they're going to be leading all our candy board meetings. They're going to be taste testing and rating all of our products as well as giving it the stamp of approval. Um, They're going to, you know, have a big hand in deciding what products we bring into our inventory, what continues on, what also um, becomes part of our candy fun house line. So the research and development side of that. Um, and the biggest thing is, you know, we want them to be able to put fun at the forefront of their daily routine and just be super creative and bring in all those new ideas for us. So does this include, yeah, you mentioned new ideas. So it includes like new flavors, new things, new products. Does it also include um, vetting some of like the classics and, and things that have been out there forever that people might be like, bring this back? Do they make decisions on that as well? Yes. So we carry 3,500 plus products. Um, So it's a huge, you know, warehouse and huge inventory. So we do have where we cycle through different products. And that's one thing we want them to have a big hand in is if we've, you know, had a lot of requests to bring something back or if, you know, something new and exciting is coming out, if people want us to bring it in so that they can try it, they're going to have a big hand in getting hold of that and trying it and seeing if it's worth carrying and, you know, giving it that stamp of approval. Random mm-hmm. testing, I'm assuming, as well for, for some of the candy, too, because I guess things things can happen, and that would be part of the job and, and reports? Yes, 100%. Okay. Fantastic. So the type of candy. Yeah, exactly. The type of candy. Um, do you think it's kind of a 50-50, like, or is there a different ratio for how much stuff people want back, like the, the old school things that they grew up with that's no longer in stores, no longer can be found anywhere? Uh, do people come to Candy Funhouse for that? Or do you find that a lot of people want to try new stuff and will come to Candy Funhouse to, to get the scoop on that as well? I would say, honestly, it is actually about 50-50. We have a huge following of a lot of, like, older clientele who really do want to come forward for that uh, all that retro candy, you know, the candy that they grew up with, the candy that they can't find anymore, you know, at the local gas station. Um, so we do have a huge retro section because of that. And then, of course, because of TikTok and socials and how connected we are, um, there is obviously that huge push now for, like, all the newest and exciting candy that comes out, as well as, like, all the exotic candy. So candies from locations like... Germany, Japan, England, like the candies that we normally can't get here. There is also that big push Mm. to bring it in here on that side. That would be fascinating. Okay, so somebody wanting the job, what are some of the perks? I mean, my dentist would love me to get the job. (laughs) (laughs) So it's $100,000 salary. Um, There's an extensive dental plan, of course, um, as you will be tasting and trying candy and everything. Of course, you know, candy comes along with that as a big perk. Um, And then it is just one of those, you know, fun and vibrant jobs where you're going to have a lot of creativity and a lot of say in um, the, you know, the new ideas, the new, um, like, exciting things that we're going to take part of at Candy Funhouse. Any traveling? Yes, actually, I was going to say there is the opportunity to travel. Now, the job position is remote if you're not within um, Toronto, Ontario. Um, So there's opportunity to either come into the warehouse as well as for different types of candy shows. For example, last in May, I should say not last month, um, we went to the Chicago Sweets and Snacks Expo. So there is opportunity to travel to, you know, these candy shows. Um, We also have um, just a lot of upcoming projects that we'd love them to be a part of. So there is the opportunity to travel and, you know, try new things in new locations. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you mentioned, you know, TikTok and uh, it's so true, like things start 
trending because someone's done it and it's being shared and shared and shared. And before you know it, it's this big, uh, huge thing that people are trying all over the place. So that would be a cool thing to to try out as well, right? Like collaboration-wise. Roll into the job. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's one thing that um, Kenny Funhouse is working on doing, as, you know, doing more collaborations and more things worldwide, we'll say. So they'll have a yeah. hand in that. Nice. Uh, now, who's able to apply? So any North American resident and anyone who is ages five plus is able to apply. So yes, we did open it to children. Um, The reason being, if you've ever spoken to a kid, they have some of the best imaginations and we're looking for somebody to really bring those big out there ideas to us. So we want, we didn't want to limit ourselves by just speaking to adults. I've got to assume there is a ton of people already. And if you could give us kind of the, the timelines that you're looking for, applications to come in and some of the things that that you're seeing already stephanie that would be really kind of cool uh, i'm going to guess that there's an enormous amount of resumes flying in we have had an extremely enormous amount um we knew you know we were going to get some feedback 100 but nothing this big we actually currently have over 160,000 applicants Wow, uh, and they're still coming. We actually have it open until August thirty first, so I'm sure that number is going to probably surpass two hundred thousand, like thousand, by the end of this. <laughs> um, yeah, but yes, uh, yeah. It's, uh, I don't. Luckily, I don't have to go through the resume. I, so. I'm just going to say, how the <laughs> heck do you guys do that? Like that? I don't care if you had a team of thirty. That is a tremendous amount yeah. and, and criterion to go through. How do you even start eliminating? Because the first thing anyone's going to say is start it with, yum, I really could chew my way into this job. <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure how they're doing it. Uh, you know, it's just not my job to say. <laughs> but I know um, if you are applying that, uh, you know, if you go above and beyond, that does make it help, uh, you know, stand out, like for your resume to stand out. We've had people submit some you know, wonderful videos, taking us on their socials and, you know, dressing oh up as characters. So we've had some very fun out there. And I mean, that is a great way to get our attention because it does stand out. Yeah, that would obviously be uh, awesome to go through that, you know, because there's, as you said, you're looking for the imagination, the creativity, uh, someone who really puts fun forward. So uh, that starts with the application. And and also, it seems like it's a pretty important role. First of all, I feel like you need to maybe multiply the roles, right? Two or three. <laughs> yeah, you need some <laughs> backups. So many people. We, yeah. we might have to down the line for sure. <laughs> Honestly. Um, but it seems pretty important to... to um, have people who are willing to be creative, you know, put that side of themselves on the table and, um, you know, look through and have fun and also just be able to to open up the possibilities about candy. You, you mentioned the diversity, right? Going to places, um, trying things from all around the world, all kinds of stuff. So there is definitely some deeper things to think about than just yum candy. Exactly. I mean, it's a very important role to us. We, you know, as being one of the leaders in the confectioner world, um, we use our community through our socials a lot to kind of fuel us and reimagine the way candy can bring people together. So we're really looking for that CCO to help elevate us and bring, you know, create more entertainment through our digital media experience, experience so that we want, we want to connect with our, with our audience and with our um, customers first. And then, you know, sell that candy secondary. So we're looking for that CCO person to bring those ideas and, you know, put us at the forefront just for imagination, nostalgia, and everything creative first okay. and foremost. So, so since this was a, a first position like it of its kind, how did it go over pitching this and, and, and kind of to get the, the green light? Uh, I mean, I'm sure most people involved with the company see the importance of it. 
100%. And funnily enough, it actually was our CEO, excuse me, who just thought about it. Awesome. <laughs> so we say hired Candy All just last year, which, is, like I said, is myself and a few colleagues. And uh, we thought the position was great, but we were just thinking, you know, it's kind of like wanting Willy Wonka for the chocolate factor. Like, we yes. want somebody yeah. to kind of take on that role and kind of lead us in the right direction and everything. So he he's the one who actually brought it to the team first and said, I'm thinking we should be looking for this kind of person. We're all like, yes, we're all for it. So it kind of went from there and just snowballed. That's awesome. Well, I'm sure you won't have any problems finding the first uh chief candy officer at candy funhouse but where can people go to apply you know just in case you're looking for more applications oh we definitely are by so we can you can apply through our website candyfunhouse.ca on our careers page or you can also apply through our linkedin at candy funhouse this is awesome well, well we know you're a little you so short much. Uh, on resumes yeah yeah so. yeah <laughs> yeah we're always here kelly and i if you need some extra support thank you so much stephanie it was a, pr- a really awesome talking to you and good luck Thank you. Have a great day. You too. We were speaking with candyologist Stephanie West, Candy Funhouse's uh, chief candy officer role. This is what they're trying to fill right now. Uh, seems like an awesome opportunity. You know, 160,000 people have already applied. Put your name in there too. $100,000 salary and lots of dental coverage. Wow. Yep. In the next hour of Kelly and Company, Young Wang shares her recent learnings about lawns, aesthetics, aesthetics, excuse me, and diversity. On our voices segment, we chat with former AMI presenter and comedian now, uh, DJ Demers, about his upcoming comedy show in Toronto. But up next, comedian reporter Kim Thistle is here with her update. Stand by. When you tune into the show in the middle of an interview. I had one of those hiccup burp things. Uh-oh. Have you had those before? Sometimes. Sometimes it's the reverse, right? It's like it feels like it's going backwards in your eyes. <laughs> You're listening to Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, repeated the show at 5 p.m. Wherever you're listening in around the world, we appreciate having you with us. Uh, Remember, maybe you can check us out via AMI.ca. You can listen to the live stream right there and also check out other things going on here at Accessible Media Inc. Any way that you find to take in the program, we appreciate it no matter what you're doing. And we always try to mention a few of those ways for you to know, just so that uh, whatever works for you the best, you can enjoy AMI-audio and Kelly and Company. Rami Amuthan, Kelly McDonald, we are the hosts of the program. Thanks for being with us. And on Mondays and Tuesdays, we get a chance to visit with one of our community reporters. Today, Kim Thistle joins us now with news from St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, but she happens to be in downtown Halifax today. What's going on over there, Kim? Well, good good day, good afternoon. I'm enjoying beautiful Halifax like as a uh, tourist now. The dropping Ooh. in and not in and out for a quick meeting with the CNIB or something like that. So walking around downtown Halifax, and I got a quiet spot. They let me come upstairs in this restaurant, Salty's Restaurant, and I'm overlooking the water and watching it, the ferry going back to Dartmouth and looking at the city across the bay. So it's pretty pretty cool. Like it's no. a beautiful city, and even Halifax is lovely. Not Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm getting to see more of Nova Scotia than I've seen before. 
Wow. That's what I'm doing on my little on my holidays. <laughs> Some good walking, and I'm, I was going to say enjoying the hills of Halifax, but then you're from Newfoundland. There's enough hills in your city anyway. I know we're anyway. used to the hills. <laughs> yes, there is. We're used to the hills. It's not it's not a big shock or anything like that. I visited Port Royal on the weekend, and that was very enjoyable. You know, meeting the interpreters and seeing that little village. So it's it's, it's quite it's quite a nice trip. Well, loved your description right there, Rum. She did a really good job with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she always does. Yeah. <laughs> Letting us know what she's looking at right now. Um, how uh, how long are you in town there for? Two weeks. I came here around last Wednesday, so I'm staying outside of Halifax, actually, with my friend. But, you know, we go on little day trips and tours, and we did Peggy's Cove. Holy moly, I thought Newfoundland lighthouses and things were beautiful or the scenery <gasps> what a difference like Newfoundland is more rugged I guess is the word like but Peggy's Cove the, the, I guess made from the glaciers the rocks are very very flat oh and right. I don't know yes. if you've ever visited it before you know it was, it was a different quite stunningly beautiful and you know taking pictures but you know sitting on the rocks and the lighthouses behind you and just the smoothness of the rocks and the colors and and the the area and the way they have it set up and the beautiful little shops. So here I'm doing advertising, reporting things to do in Nova Scotia. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess we should jump to your items. Let's talk about Mount Pearl Renaissance Festival. What is this all about? Well, this is the first time being offered. And do you remember meeting Darren Han several years ago? He's a coach from Heavyweight Gym. You betcha. We had him on the show. Right. Exactly. So he's very active, like in Comic-Con and, and that type of thing. And, you know, dressing up as superheroes. And I believe he's part of this group putting this together as well, the Mount Pearl Renaissance Festival. And it's August the 27th to the 28th, two days, you know, the last weekend of August. Um, and it's been, you know, said Mount Pearl. Unfortunately, Mount Pearl is currently, is still been ongoing. We've, there's been a strike in Mount Pearl, the municipal strike with the, the workers. So, like, Venues are closed, like the Glacier um, softball programs or, or soccer programs are not going on this summer. So due to that, they had to get a new location. So I was talking to Darren today. I checked with him, and he said they're hoping to be able to move into pa- Paradise Park in Paradise, which is just outside St. John's, not too far. But still, that you know, unfortunately, you won't get the go bus there if you were planning oh, to go. Oh, boy. Because the go bus does not travel into paradise, unfortunately. So there, you know, now you're into a situation of, you know, looking for a ride and whatnot. And the venue has changed. Now, that area is very nice, Paradise Park, and they have outdoors and they have the building there as well. So, but he's not confirmed. It won't be till tonight. So that's the number one thing that's unfortunate there. But if anyone was interested, it is $15 a day for adults and children 5 to 12. And I thought it was so cool. Like, it's celebrating all things from medieval and Renaissance period and a unique historical event. So the Renaissance is a time when things changed and art became more humanistic. And we started dressing to show our, our prestige and, like, the bright reds and the burgundy represented the royalty and the high neck collars for the queen, like the ruffle collars. And, you know, and from what I read about the Renaissance, the more clothes you wore showed all the wealth that you had. So I think that's going to be interesting to see that because it says you can learn artisan crafts. So I'm assuming painting because that seemed to be a big thing that happened during medieval times. The right, Last yep. Supper was mm-hmm. painted during the Renaissance and the Mona Lisa. Um, dress and period clothing. 
so I thought I'd throw out a tidbit. What would the pants be called that the men would wear? Do you know what that would be? Trousers, weren't Mm-mm. they? Breeches. Breeches. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. And then the ladies' dresses, they, you know, I guess from it, they lower cut and, you know, stopped underneath the bosom, and then they came long dresses. And as I said, the colors of reds and the burgundies symbolize wealth. So you can Well, it was such a disparity between the haves and have-nots then. It was, and, and the, the distance ha- even exactly. became further. Exactly. And it said dance to a different tune. So I'm assuming they're going to have some music there. There will be vendors, so vendors will be selling things like homemade and handcraft items like jewelry, leatherworks, clothing, soap, woodcraft, food, and more. I'm always for the food, you know that. I love going for the food. And and they also have a big canopy, so they're encouraging anyone to decorate in Renaissance style. So when I look at the pictures in Renaissance style, you're talking like, like... canopies and tents and a lot of um, drapery. That's what I see in the pictures. Nice. The, the wow. To doing up. So, uh, so being reenacted, and you know, I think that'd be a very fun event for families to get together. Well, you learn again, a lot in, too, in, and the people who are doing I, it really know their stuff if you, you get talking to them. And that's the impression I'm getting. Like, I don't know if they'll actually have swords there, because I saw that question on Facebook, are they allowed to bring replicate swords, you know, you know, as long as it doesn't promote violence? So not sure the answer to that. Um, the time of the knights and the queens, so I'm sure the knights will be going walking around, and the queen will probably be there, probably be some queens there. It's an assumption on my part, but I would think that they truly want to bring it together. And the jugglers, I would think they would have gestures there. And So I think it's an opportunity for family to get out. Us as visually impaired who have vision loss, like being some descriptive and perhaps feeling the clothing. Like that's what I did when I went to Port Royal and the lady was doing the stitchery and, and she let me feel the fabric and I felt the fabric of her uniform, her costume. So being interactive that way. We do not have a mask mandate, but once again, to each their own, you know, certainly wear a mask if you're comfortable, if you want to. Okay. This is awesome. Um, I think there's a lot to learn and a lot to have fun with, too, which is really, really cool. Uh, can we move to Come Home Year 2022 in Newfoundland and Labrador? Perfect. Yes. Now, Come Home Year, we call it, like, you know, in Newfoundlanders that live away, come home and visit your province. And as I've mentioned many times, many Newfoundlanders love to come home, miss their family, their friends, their, 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 the culture, the, you know, the, the landscape. So this year, you know, with COVID being relaxed and restrictions a bit more, come on home. And my friends, I mean, I'm looking at my friends on Facebook who have attended, they live here in Newfoundland, but gone to come home here in, in a festival in Cape Coral and had a ball. So come home here, New, government Newfoundland, Labrador. We have several historic sites. This year, there'll be three. So encouraging everyone to get out and visit the sites that we have around Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh, sorry, some people showed up. Um, the Beothic Interpretation Center, that's in Boyd's Cove in Gander. I've visited that before. I mean, the Beothic were, you know, there's no other way to say it. They died either, you know, starvation or disease from, you know, the settlers, you know, people who came over mm-hmm. from England. And, you know, and there's a statue as you go in the trail, the walking trail of Shana Diddy, the last surviving Beothic. So you would learn about, you know, the boat making. You'd learn about their the tools that they use. 
There's in Cape Banabista Lighthouse is another place that's wonderful to get there and find out how the lighthouse was manned and see how a lighthouse keeper would live and what would be in the, the homes and the flags that were used. The colonial build, building in St. John's, unfortunately, is closed for renovation, so that's not open. Um, Commissariat House, I've talked about that before when I go for Christmas times, when they have it open and they have it done in, in um, you know, decorated for Christmas. That is a cool place to visit. That's where the, the base of the, the military commander oversaw the, the, the command of St. John's Harbor and deployed in the they got their rations and things like that. But that's a beautiful home. People are in period costume. Um, there's a lady there upstairs who, who is making the, the lace. Like you see them doing it by hand, making lace. So, And they're cooking the bread on over the open fire in the kitchen, you know, over the hearth. Um, Cupid's Cove Plantation, that's just outside, about an hour outside St. John. Another great place. We're excavating, the, um, I think it's uh, Gilbert. I'm trying to remember the, the, the settler. 1600s, they're finding artifacts every summer. There's new things being found. So Man. that's another mm-hmm. place to go. That's and, awesome. Uh, we have, it is, and we have Hearts Content Cable Station. That's outside St. John's as well. That's free, and you go in there and you can see, you know, that you can do the Morse code. You would see how the people were employed there for the transatlantic to send messages back and forth from, you know, Canada to England, Newfoundland. MacDugger Plantation, and we have Newman Wine Vaults that's downtown. You can sample a bit of port. The, the, the port used to be stored in the hills of Single Hill, of Cat, um, Single Hill. and uh, Point Amore Lighthouse, and Trinity Sites. Awesome. So wow, many, Kim, there's so much. That is amazing, and uh, good timing. We're, we're out of time with you. We're going to let you go. It's yep. almost dinner time. Uh, you might as well grab some food there at Salt. <laughs> Enjoy your visit, and uh, be safe. I will. Thank you. Thank you. You take care. Talk to you next month. Kim Thistle is our community reporter, St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. She covers off those areas for us. Remember to check out our blog at ami.ca slash Co from her report. Coming up next, Young Wang shares a recent learnings about lawns, aesthetics, and diversity. We'll talk in just a moment. Locate AMI-audio right from your TV. Shaw Cable subscribers, check us out on uh, channel 825. Rogers Ignite customers, you guys can find us over on channel 146. Visit AMI.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. I'm Kelly McDonald with my co-host, Ramya Muthan. So, Kels, last month we spoke to our friend Young Wang, who is back again. We're we're basically uh, getting to know Young and all the different things that she finds um, interesting to talk about and insightful through these conversations. And today, the topic at hand is lawns, aesthetics, and diversity. So, Young, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Hello, good. Thank you. Hello, Kelly and Remya. Nice to be here again. Well, nice to have you back. And this is a really uh, curious conversation for mm-hmm. me. So maybe we should start with some of the context as to why this um, subject was chosen for today. You had a visit to a friend's party recently. So what did you notice there that you wanted to bring up today in conversation? 
Mm-hmm. So my friend Helen Lee and her husband threw a party for East and West Learning Connections members back in July. And she called it um, a Taste of Summer Herbs Party <laughs> in her garden. Um, so she grows a lot of herbs in her garden. And um, we chatted over cold drink and cold drinks and uh, cocktails uh, with the herbs that she grows. And um, their garden is absolutely beautiful. Um, she is someone who um, has a lot of uh, environmental awareness. So she uh, and her husband grow some vegetables, uh, herbs, uh, trees, and different species, uh, species um, uh, grass. Because um, she wants to keep her backyard garden diverse in species. And also all those grass, they're native species, and they do not grow tall. So you don't have to mow them. Right, uh, like a clover, yeah, clover, uh, like violet, um, like creeping jenny, birds food or uh, uh, carpet bugle weed, uh, a lot. Um, so keep it in low maintenance, but that doesn't mean uh, no management. Actually, she spends a lot of time doing research, and of course, getting her hands dirty, and her backyard. <laughs> garden is absolutely neat and beautiful and energizing. So we all wanted to stay there for as long as possible. Wow. But, um, yeah, interestingly, uh, they keep their front yard as that regular, like, uh, lawn, just like everybody else in the neighborhood. So how come that's uh, interesting to you when you say that? I mean, and again, mm-hmm. I always think of a garden out back. I know people have bush and sometimes garden of some sorts, maybe flowers to for, for the look out front. But I always think of that's the lawn. People come to the house, you walk in. It's interesting that, that, that it kind of does it puzzle you that they, they, they would choose to do it that way. And then you go out back and it's like a different world. Oh, well. She just wants to keep it like uh, naturalized along, so it does not need a lot of fertilizer, does right. not need a lot of water, does not, you don't have that noise of mowing machine, so it's quite uh, good to the environment. And yeah. also those, those species, they can cover the ground very well, they keep the soil and moisture very well, um, so they're good to the environment. Um, but the, the lawns, actually, they, they take up a lot of water, and they do not keep the soil as those native species. Very um, interesting. So, yeah, yeah. Huh. It's like an uh, opposite, isn't it? But they want to keep it? it in the front. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. But they look lovely, but they're not, you know, native, and they are actually uh, very high maintenance. So actually, historically... People, um, people, you know, develop them to show as a status, like a symbol for status. Like yep. you have the wealth and you have the time to keep such, you know, expensive <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> energy-consuming thing. Yeah. yeah, if you look at TV especially, or well, and, and go into affluent neighborhoods and stuff like that, big lawn out front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So that's... Uh, uh, people, yeah, want to want to keep that. It is beautiful. It is uh, lovely, uh, and also it is a symbol for status, right? And and 
to right. show your kind of attitude toward toward life, like middle class, toward upper class, something like that. Yeah. And I'm curious about that because um, there was something else that caught your attention, which was this article from CBC uh, regarding the this front mm-hmm. lawn concept, right? Like what it's supposed to look like, what it's not, what it's, I guess the the real thing is that things are changing in the way that we think of gardens, backyard, front yard, lawn, quote, um, and what that's supposed to look like. So um, it, should I give you some, should I give everybody some context on this article and then we can discuss? Sure. Could you please? Because that, that couple's story is very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, okay. very interesting. Could you please, uh, yeah, bring it up to uh, for our audience, please? Yeah. So the title uh, of the CBC article was "Couples Win for uh, Forces Smiths Falls to Revisit Approach to Naturalized Lawns," um, and this is from May thirtieth, twenty twenty-two. So Beth and Craig St. Clair. This is just a summary, by the way, just a quick synopsis. Uh, Beth and Craig St. Clair moved from Seattle to Smiths Falls, Eastern Ontario, ten years ago. They planted trees and other native species in front of their house, and the city ordered them to rip up their naturalized lawn after some neighbors complained about the appearance of the front yard. They contested that order in Ontario Superior Court, and as uh, Nina Marie Lister, professor at the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Toronto Metropolitan University, said, it's a little bit odd that we're still adopting a kind of very old colonial mentality that the only thing for a yard is a monoculture or single species turf grass that isn't even native and it takes an enormous amount of water energy and puts um fertilizers and sometimes pesticides to maintain this very outdated idea while natural lawns can be a great benefit to pollinators such as bees and butterflies and make a difference to ecology. The town backed down and was revisiting the bylaw to uh, recognize the merits both for wildlife and for the natural environment. However, St. Clair said the fight wasn't over. He said, until the bylaws change in all the 400 municipalities in Ontario, I don't feel very satisfied. I want everybody in Ontario to not just have the right to do it, but for it to be encouraged so we can restore so much of nature in our lawns. Um, and Young, I'll hand it over to you. So what part of this is intriguing uh, for, from what you saw at your friend's house? Yeah, they pretty much align with each other idea, right? So mm-hmm. it is good that naturalized lawns, they're good to ecology. Uh, but um, traditionally here, People have that aesthetic, like you need to keep your lawn tidy in that, you know, single <laughs> uh, format, right? The mm-hmm. those turf grass lawns, even they they're not actually good to environment. But at the time, back in old days, people did not really know about this environmental effect. So they just think, oh, this is good. This is you know uh, expensive, so it's good. But in our days, we, we care so much about environment and uh, um, we are more aware of this uh, naturalized thing, maybe better. So, yeah. yeah but the, I, even but just this, thinking about but, dandelions, mm-hmm. right? Right. Like right now, we're t- a lot of us are talking about yeah. weeds uh, and what is actually considered a weed because technically weeds are just something we created. Like we're, we're like, oh, we don't like this, so it's a weed. 
its problem. And dandelions, um, they're saying, are are way more beneficial than they are harmful to leave them in our yards rather than pick every last one because it looks ugly. Especially for the pollinators. (laughs) And and I think that Mm -hmm. that is the, the problem we've had over... The years is what you're saying about the aesthetics, the, the fact that communities make a decision themselves about the neighborhood. And if, you know, the Smiths have a nice lawn, well, the, the Joneses have got to have a nice lawn and the McDonald's yep. over there have got to, it, it becomes that. And, and I think your question of who decides, and again, mm-hmm. unless you're doing something that's against the municipal ordinance, the community decides, and you always have your outlier or the people that don't want to follow that. And then what do we do to them? Oh, I'll shrun them. Turn your back on them. Yeah. So, yeah, the the uh, this couple, they, they thought um, the com- uh, complainants used the city bylaw to exert their own mm, aesthetic. Yep. So, yeah. So, but uh, there's, I think there's a fine line between like bringing... Uh, more nature into our, our yards uh, and uh, negligence of the appearance uh, to the neighborhood. So the latter is no good as well. But the the fine line is who should get the say <laughs> to say, you know, mm-hmm. which one is better or good. So I'd really like to to see, you know, hear your opinion on this. Um, yeah, I know. For, have well, I know for myself, it, it is one of those things. Like you said, the you know the neighborhoods you keep up. You want a neighborhood appearance. People have a value on their homes. You want always to have the most. That's our biggest thing. Is you know don't deteriorate the neighborhood in any way. I find it interesting mm-hmm. though by the way you presented because the backyard, they're they're peaceful, isolated. You know they can have the herbs, they can have the grasses they want, but out front they felt the need to have the the, the typical mm-hmm. lawn, whether it was convenience or whatever, or because yeah, but the rest of the neighborhood we tend to it's almost like a movie uh, a movie site building where you have the the real front of the building. So for the film that they're making, you see the front of the building, but you go through the door into it. Hey, there's nothing back here. But here, <laughs> that is where they're allowed to have their, yeah, the facade. Once you go through yeah. it, you, there's their garden in that room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it is quite interesting because yeah, my mom, my mom's front yard is the same way, right? She takes care of it and manicures it and makes sure it looks because there's the comparison to yes. what does it look like to the left and right of me. Um, but the backyard is a completely different environment. But Yang, you were going to talk about. Um, I'm hoping this quick story of a Chinese philosopher before we go. Oh yeah, because a really different culture. They have a different aesthetic uh, perception. So when I came to Canada, I noticed like people could, like remove the falling leaves on their lawns like almost immediately because uh, mm-hmm. they think they're kind of like garbage, right? It's um, messy. But in my culture, actually, we have like tons of poems about falling leaves and it always gives me a poetic feel to see them on the lawn. And uh, this uh, Chinese philosopher, uh, she she dies. In, he dies in 1986 at the age of 89. So, um, and his area is in aesthetics. So, once his students offered to help him uh, collect all the uh, falling leaves in his yard and move them, but he stopped them and he said, "No, no, no! I, I want to leave those leaves on the ground. I want them to." accumulate like in layers so uh, when it rains 
I get to enjoy uh, listening to raindrops mm. on the leaves. It's beautiful. So that is a very typical and oriental perception of beauty of the nature. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I have this uh, uh, this uh, how to say conflicting idea about falling leaves because here if you don't collect them, the neighbors would you know complain about it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not good. Yeah. But and they yeah, get actually, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting because when you talk to a gardener, um, (laughs) you'll probably hear something similar, right? Or or the the perceptions of what it means to have all these different things going on and who it helps and how it relates back to us caring about nature. But then at the end of the day, you're asking who makes the decision on the aesthetics, mm-hmm. on how we uh, keep our backyards, our front yards. Young, this is very, very interesting to think about. Thank you so much, and we'll chat with you next month. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, bye for now. Take care. Young Wang is our uh, contributor. She's a journalist, and she joins us monthly. She'll continue to join us for insightful conversations like this one on lawns and aesthetics. Coming up next... On our Voices segment today, we chat with former AMI presenter, now, of course, comedian, DJ Demers joins us in just a moment here on Kelly at Company. Welcome back to the program, ladies and gentlemen. Ramya Booth and Kelly McDonald, we are here as the hosts of this program and glad that you're here listening in as you normally are right now uh, to the show and uh, whatever you're doing, folks, absolutely wonderful to have you on board. Uh, Ramya, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind, start with a little item for us here. What do you got? Okay, so we're just um, getting started with the conversation and hopefully we can get to our guest for voices because that'll be really, really fun. But in the meantime, a police boat came to the rescue of a man in danger of missing his wedding in Boston Harbor. And this was from mm -hmm, this last weekend. Patrick and Hannah Mahoney's had their wedding on Thompson Island. The boat the groom was supposed to take broke down, leaving him stranded at the dock. That's when the Boston Police Department's Harbor Patrol Unit stepped in for this groom in distress call. Officer Joseph Matthews, along with his partner, were able to get everyone to the island safely. (laughs) That was from a reporter, Danny Bucci, and also the groom said he was determined to get to his wedding and probably would have walked over after the low tide arrived. Uh, That was at 6 p.m. I mean, I think weddings are the most stressful. I just want to put that out there. Like... (laughs) No matter what it is, uh, the groom, the bride, the bridal party, the groomsmen, the guests, the music, the uh, the aesthetics, the food, whatever it may be, weddings can be the most stressful. And on the day of, you're literally just keeping your fingers crossed that things go as planned. And then when they don't, what do you do? I guess you hopefully don't stress and hopefully someone can come to the rescue like, oh, uh, man. like it happened with this groom. But well, wow. And what a way. And, you know, you're sure your dogged determination, of course, it, it's your most special day. 
and you stop and say, well, what's going on here? What, how are things, the stars not aligning properly mm-hmm. here? And how frustrated one one could get. But it's always amazing when something happens like that. You know, you have to form, formulate that backup plan. I'll wait till low tide, you know, and knowing that's still yeah. a ways away. I'll walk from here. You know, a- anyone hearing that's just like, oh, man. But you just hope, of yeah. course, um, people notice that uh, I'm not around or that I can't be found. And- <laughs> like- <laughs> and start looking for help. I, I Maybe people half at the, the world, wedding might notice I'm not there. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Half the world knows I'm out boating. <laughs> and right? what do I? What can I do from there? And that's that's the part that just makes me smile. You know what? When you said, um, "Or why aren't the stars aligning?" I kind of wonder when you're planning your wedding. Like some people have destination weddings, um, or or weddings that are just you know on top of a cliff or something like you know, out of the ordinary, right? You're not just parking your car outside the venue and <laughs> going over. Uh, like maybe the stage is situated in an interesting place. Maybe you're taking a horse and buggy ride. Like a, I had a friend who did that. So anyway, you're thinking, or the question is, do you think about what could go wrong in these scenarios if you're thinking of anything outside the box where you, for your wedding? Like I know the simple stuff like outdoor versus indoor wedding. People oh, think about exactly. getting rained out, right? But in stuff like this, like you go out boating and then you're like, oh, crap, I might not make it to my wedding. Well, and and that's that's the whole thing. You know, you, you I mean, can you just imagine that cloud that you feel like, OK, now that this has happened, what else is destined to be? a problem what else yeah. is destined to go wrong and you just hope yeah. to heaven's sakes that no that's not it can't if nothing else can go wrong that's not a symbol and again some people there's always oh, that person yeah, there that's superstitious about it i mean okay yes you're right not everybody is superstitious about it but most of us like i said are keeping our fingers crossed especially if you're part of the wedding party um or you know close in some close relation to the wedding because I've been part of now two wedding parties in my life and both of them I mean even though I wasn't the one actually getting married I was like oh god oh god oh god because to some level you're just hoping that everything turns out perfectly I would not want to be the wedding planner at any wedding do you think that when stuff like this happens Weddings are that thing where people instantly go to the bad karma, that this is going to not be good, more than any other thing yeah. that people do. I mean, people write exams, they, they have surgeries and things like that. And I have to wonder sometimes, is this the thing that people, the most, any little thing that happens, does it totally make They're them... They're thinking <gasps> of it as a thing. Yep. Yeah. Because there's so much nerves and anxiety around the concept of marriage itself right like you're you're committing and you see this in all kinds of movies and tv and books like the bride or the groom having cold feet last minute or something comes up um i had a friend who said she was laying down at her mom's house the night before her wedding saw a photo of herself across from her like on the wall um of her younger self with bangs and so she decided that minute, right there and then, somebody needed to come and cut her hair short with bangs, and she was not getting married without this haircut. Wow. And her wedding was in like, yeah, you know, a matter of half a day. So it, it, it's just like all these little triggers, like anything, as you're saying, can be triggering because you're going, oh, God, I'm not doing this. Not on the, not on my wedding day. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that that's the whole 
you don't want that rain cloud over it. And I mean, mm-hmm. I have to believe there's something that, you know, just doesn't go to any bride or groom satisfaction. There's always something that kind of leaves people, oh, man, that didn't work out. Oh, I didn't like that. Or, oh, that was a problem. Um, and, 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 you know, th- that that we're going to, when you analyze the day, and hopefully as you get further away from it, 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 everything was wonderful. Everything was great. But as you analyze yeah. it, yeah, this, this went wrong or that went wrong or I really hoped. And a lot of that happens. And, and I'm sure for most people, it, it's quite a, you know, quite a, quite an issue that way when you remind yourself it, it can't yeah. be that bad. It can't be that big of a, a problem, you know, so. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, talk about the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, uh, which has been actually forced to return some stolen artifacts from Italy. The life-size terracotta statues date back to around 350 BCE, and along with four other objects, were stolen and smuggled out of Italy, eventually making their way to the Getty Museum. An investigation by the Antiquities Trafficking Unit of Manhattan's District Attorney Office confirmed they were stolen goods. The statues have been on a list of stolen artifacts Italy has been trying to reclaim since 2006. They were bought by John Paul Getty from a now-defunct private bank in Switzerland in 1976. Megan Williams, ABC News, Rome. You think this stuff now happens or were these discoveries um, happen and we're saying, you know what, we've got to give this back or this can't be this way. Uh, This is what we've got to do when it comes to some of these problems. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a trend, if you will, uh, that we're seeing right where we're seeing we, we got to get to the bottom of where these things came from, uh, return them to their rightful owners, their rightful places, their um, you, just their original integrity and ownership, right, or creation. Um, so I think that it's pretty wild uh, that this stuff is happening kind of all at once. Um, but it's, it's, it's the way that it should be. You bet. Really. Rum, yeah. I'm going to jump us right over to our guest who's now joined us for Voices. Um, on our Voices segment, we like to learn about people's dr- passions, drives, and any comments that they have on topics that they find important. Deaf stand-up comedian DJ Demers is our guest today. He's returning to Toronto on August 20th for a headlining show at the Paradise Theatre. This comedy show will feature ASL interpretation as his recent appearance on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon did. DJ will share new material and fan favorites when he comes back to Toronto, the city where he started his stand-up career before moving to Los Angeles in 2016. DJ Damaris has released um, three independent specials, has been nominated for Best Comedy Album at the Junos Awards, has performed on Conan, three times and appeared on season 11 of America's Got Talent and of course the TV show that launched everything for him the DJ Demaris show here on AMI uh, TV with the gang my friend welcome back how are you Kelly McDonald great to hear that beautiful voice how are you my friend <laughs> absolutely wonderful Rummy and I really appreciate you joining us Deej I know we're a little short on time a bit here I want to quickly first mention your AMI TV show Sharp Focus what was that all about what was the inspiration oh I mean what was that 40 50 years ago <laughs> it just seems like it. that uh <laughs> No, I remember just being absolutely ecstatic that somebody was allowing me to be on TV. So, uh, yeah, Sharp Focus was just basically 
it's kind of a hodgepodge of all sorts of different accessibility things going on in Toronto and, and Ontario. And there's a little bit of humor, but I remember it was more kind of straight ahead reporting at the time, which uh, wasn't necessarily my forte, but I gave it my best shot and tried to inject a little humor into it. But it was a lot of fun and AMI was great. And I got to work with a lot of cool people. So I got a lot of fun memories from Sharp Focus. Yeah, I would imagine. And it's not every day anyone gets themselves a TV series, which, I mean, now when you look back, I'm sure looks very different. I want to share something with the audience, you and I, uh, on a promo for AMI-TV. Take a listen to this. I'm DJ Demers, wearing a tuxedo. And I'm Kelly McDonald, also in a tuxedo with a top hat. Here's what you'll be missing if you don't tune in to AMI. AMI Sharp Focus is now weekly. Sports Access, our original sports talk show. A whole new light documentary. AMI This Week and Accessibility in Action. And AMI Sharp Focus is now weekly. DJ, you already said that. Original programming on AMI-TV. How come Kelly gets the top hat? Now, we know why I always got the top hat, man. You remember those? Remember the going into the studio, tuxedos and all? Oh, I remember that. But you know what's funny is I forgot the promo we cut where we were both wearing tuxedos. I remembered where I had... I was made to look like Sinatra, and you were wearing a, a queen outfit. You looked like, oh, oh, like Queen Elizabeth. Oh, hold on. I think your memory is uh, kind of reversed. I think it was the other way around, wasn't it? You, the queen. Was I Sammy Davis really? Jr. in that one? Yeah. Oh, may, maybe. Maybe I uh, suppressed it and kind of subverted it in my memory. I, I remember a queen outfit somewhere in there. But you know what's really funny <laughs> about that promo is I kind of did a joke exactly like that on my recent Tonight Show appearance where I just repeated a line again at the end. And maybe somewhere in my brain, I was being inspired by that uh, promo we cut wow. all those years ago. All right. Yeah. Shh, don't say that too loud. <laughs> Copyright issues. Okay. It sounds like this promo is a lot of fun. Did you always want to be a comedian? We were talking at the top of the show about things we wanted to do when we were kids people we wanted to yeah i mean as far back as i can remember i i knew i liked making people laugh and and that was why i moved to toronto from kitchener to uh to pursue stand-up so yeah i've always uh as far back as i can remember but the fact that it's actually happened and i am actually doing it is sometimes now that it's been 13 years of me doing stand-up it feels a little surreal that it's actually happened so it's pretty cool so because you went after it yeah that's the thing right yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I was just young and stupid enough to not think about what that meant and all that that entailed. <laughs> well, does that include and, uh, the part of just moving to Los Angeles and giving it a kick? I remember you and I talking about that before you left and coming down to just do it. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty much I always remember um, at my graduation when I graduated from Wilfrid Laurier, there was a commencement speech from the founder of Chapters in Indigo, uh, Heather Reisman. And I just remember the end of her speech. She said, the only difference between those who do it and those who don't do it is those who do it, do it. And I know that's Mm. like the most simple advice in the world, but it really stuck with me. So I was like, oh, why not? Why not just give it a shot? And the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out. So yeah, like I said, I think I was just kind of naive enough and and stupid enough to, to just like <laughs> go after it and and, and uh, i've gotten a little bit lucky but another thing is i love it so much so there was never a reason for me mm-hmm. to stop like i never fell out of love or anything so uh so it's been it's been nothing but good times doing it and i'm really appreciative for it 
Well, we'll have to have you back on here, too. I know we lost a bit of time today, so let's get into the meat of things coming up so we get people out to your show. Uh, on the August 20th at the Paradise Theatre, it will have uh, ASL interpretation. Now, this has been pretty important for you, as we saw on your recent appearance on uh, The Tonight Show. Now, as a stand-up, is it really important to make sure this is included for you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's become more and more important. Um, in the beginning, I didn't necessarily think of it too much. I was just kind of trying to find my footing in the industry and, and figure out if I could be funny. Um, and then the more I've done it, the longer I've done it, I've, I've had a lot more deaf and hard of hearing people kind of follow along on the journey. And and um, now it's kind of like if I don't have it on a show that I produce, at least, if I'm just doing, you know, I do shows around, LA pretty much every night of the week. I'm not bringing an interpreter with me every time necessarily, but uh, on any show that I'm producing, yeah, it's very important to me because I mean, like my second special that I filmed was called Interpreted and I had an interpreter. And then the third one that I filmed, I was going to not have an interpreter because I thought that would kind of be a one-off. And I had a a deaf woman reach out to me and ask if if the third one, the, the new special was going to be interpreted. And mm-hmm. I said, no, not this time. And she said, why not? And mm-hmm. I didn't have a good answer. I was like, I, I don't know. So I was like, you're right. So I, I added an interpreter. And now, yeah, I, I don't see a reason to ever stop because the thought that deaf people can't even really go to comedy because there's, there's no way for them to enjoy it never yeah. crossed my mind because I was so entrenched in the hearing world because my family's hearing and I had hearing aids. So it's been kind of eye-opening. And AMI was really eye-opening for accessibility issues in general. Like I even had kind of like a, a sly uh, wink to the, the blind community in, in my, um, my Tonight Show appearance just from, because I would have never really learned about uh, descriptive video if, I ha- if it hadn't been for my time at AMI. So there's all sorts of things. The more I educate myself, if you know something and you still don't make an effort to do it, then that's where I think you can go wrong. Ignorance is one thing, but once you learn, you, you've got to try to make an attempt to at least make it accessible for everybody. Yeah. And at a point you got to say, like, I have to keep myself accountable if I'm going to try to keep other people accountable. Right. That's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, from your perspectives of doing comedy, being in LA, is there anything you want to kind of say about the disability scene in comedy? Is that a, is that something that's noticeable? Um, in terms of what? Sorry, like just, just disabled comedians or a comedy and disability like do they interact with each other aside from your own experience um yeah i mean i don't i don't know i, I feel like there's still some ableism going on that is subtle and uh you know even well for example this isn't necessarily la but i had an audition yesterday and it was over zoom and there was no no video and they didn't have transcripts so I had to say pardon a few times because I couldn't hear them and I'm pretty sure I didn't get the thing I was auditioning for and I you know I sent them a note after because I doubt they even knew that they were you know putting me behind the eight ball so to speak with the way they had the audition set up so in terms of LA specifically I'm not sure um, how much I can offer on that but the industry in general I think still has Mm -hmm. some strides or a lot of strides to make, but I, I think the main thing is that people aren't thinking about it, but even things like on Instagram and social media now, I feel like captions are, are everywhere and, um, you know, embedded descriptions are more and more prevalent. And I just think the more we have people advocating for it, um, 
we're going to to make progress. And I'm not necessarily the strongest advocate out there, but but you're out there, man. You're out there, and that's what we need. DJ, of course, we're running. You know the time. Tell us where to grab tickets for the show this weekend. Uh, go to my site, djdemers.com, Saturday, 8 p.m., Paradise Theater, Toronto. We'll get you back on the show when you have some time, man, and talk a lot more. Thanks, Deej, for making time for us. Thanks, Kelly. Great to talk to you guys. You too. DJ Damaris to catch his show uh, this weekend in Toronto. We'll wrap things up right after this on Kelly and Company. If you missed any part of the show, remember to check out the Kelly and Company podcast. Subscribe using your favorite podcatcher. And you can listen to the show in segment form or you can uh, whatever you want works best for you. You listen to the show in its complete form where we toss on an audio vanity card at the end. And, of course, we're here every day at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Whenever you can, please join us live or catch the repeat at 5 p.m. Eastern. Ramya Muthan, Kelly McDonald, host of the show. Real quick, a segment you want to shout out. Uh, it's been really just so much great conversation, Kels. I think I'll go back to our conversation with Young, talking about aesthetics and lawns. Um, just the question at hand is, who makes the decisions on what our lawns should look like? And why do we hold on to this real old school way of thinking about uh, this turf lawn, you know, flat, nothing on it. It's not even a native species, which is super interesting to think about. Um, and say, yeah, that's what everybody's lawn's got to look like. It's not really... Yeah, it's pretty outdated. I would have liked to have uh, got some knowledge on some of the great things to have with those herbs, you know, the drinks, what you have. Ooh, been great. <laughs> yeah. Paul Daniel, speaking of old school, joins us to tell us a little bit of what's coming up tomorrow on oh, Now no. with Dave Brown. Hello, Paulie D. Brutal. This is a strange way, Kelly, to, to, to keep our friendship going, Kelly. I got to tell you, old school. Thank you very much. <laughs> That'll be his new nickname right around. We'll just oh, start getting it going. Hey, oh, man, it's oh, old it's, school. Yeah. Oh, well, you'll be hearing from HR any day now. <laughs> 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 no, show. no, the emphasis on the school part, always teaching. <laughs> what do we have for the that's show your, tomorrow? That's your alibi, sure. <laughs> that's Jeff right. Blind Camp is returning on August 27th at uh, Camp Manitou, just outside of Winnipeg. We'll speak to two members from the Resource Center for members who are deafblind on some of the re- events planned for the camp. Uh, Guy Carrier, our community reporter from Subway, Ontario, will give us the details for registration for, uh, for CNAB's upcoming Connecting the Dots conference, and our tech contributor, Mike Agabo from the App Show, will tell us about the commencing battle developing between Disney with its new ads-supported streaming service coming up later this year, and Netflix as it fights to keep subscribers. Wow, that's a lot of stuff, Paul, on the program. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Uh, thanks for uh, making the time, and HR is calling. So there, go state your case. Mine <laughs> is both of us. school, both man. Of us. School, school. <laughs> Uh, class is in on now with Dave Brown at 9 a.m. in the morning, ladies and gentlemen. You can catch their program. Also, they're available as a podcast, so please subscribe and give them a rating and review while you're in there. Ramya, back at it tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern. That's where it goes. Talk then. Jeff Ryman will kick the th- uh, show off with, uh, with us, and he'll be here with the latest health headlines. Members of the White Ribbon Movement are commemorating the initiative's 30th anniversary. We're going to find out more on In the Know with Margaret Weldon. Bella Strange is a makeup artist catering to the LGBTQ plus community. 
disability, and special effects communities. Uh, we, she's going to be on the program Wednesday f- on a chat for accessible makeup application. We have the Wednesday edition of Buzz with Bill as he returns to the program. That's Bill Shackleton, our producer here at AMI-audio. And the Disability Collective has announced their first in-person event, a children's theater show titled What Happened to You? We'll learn more about it tomorrow, starting at 2 p.m. Eastern, as I forementioned. Be with us if you can, please, folks. We're waving at you. Well, a lot of people, their dream job would be sampling chocolate and candies of all types or being able to play games, whether you're a video game fan, do that and receive money, payment, be comfortable and test out all the new great stuff, right? We had a really great conversation about being that person who might be that candyologist. <laughs> and I sit back and think, well, what, whether it was when I was a kid or growing up, what did I want to do? Well, obviously work in media. My actual dream job would have been as a commentator for, for, for baseball. It was the actual one that I thought I could accomplish as a job. What else? Well, go and have some reason to tour around different cities, checking out ballparks, stadiums, hockey arenas, basketball, whatever they might be. Because of my fascination with sports, the media, and I remember being a kid thinking, it'd be great to be able to travel, have those reasons to check out these different places. And I remember telling my father that and him saying, yeah, but wouldn't you get bored? Like after a while, one place is just as like another. And I pay strict attention, I know, when I listen to people who travel for work. And of course, being a person who had to do it, I now understand what they mean. You don't get a lot of chance to enjoy those certain things. Those things that you may hear about, that cool restaurant in Kansas City or or that wonderful sushi place you should check out in Vancouver. You really get that time to rush and grab your food and go, but you've got that job to do. And only certain jobs allow you that time to move around. Even when I was thinking and considering being a stand-up comic. Yeah, yeah, me too, way back when. Um, I, I really had to think about stuff like that as on that realm too did i want to be in strange hotels did i want to sit alone yeah okay it might be great to be able to go to an aquarium or a museum if i could take it in and enjoy it or sit on different waterfronts and 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 experiment and explore yeah but after a while you can only do so much of that and what about not the second time you return to that place not the third but the fifth or sixth time <laughs> When it becomes old hat, you know, and you don't really do much more in that town you travel to or city than you do down the street, you know, where that beautiful park is. I'm in London, Ontario, and we have Springbank Park, an amazing resource. And how often did I go there even as a kid? Oh, a few times per summer. So I totally get it. You know, you just kind of let that kind of thing wear off. So I still say, I would love that journey to sample it. I'd be very willing to do so. The chocolate, the candy. Okay. But the journey I'm talking about is check out all those stadiums. 
but at this age, I'm not trying all that food that's in them, especially the creative ones that will leave me in the hotel with a big belly ache. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.